Hi there, and welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Franci, and I am your host, and I want to begin by saying thank you for listening. On this show, I am having conversations with seemingly ordinary individuals who have achieved some amazing and extraordinary results in both their life and business. My intention is to inspire and help you learn and grow by having my guests share their journey of how they face and overcome their challenges, but also how they celebrate their many wins. And now let's get on with this show and have a conversation with today's guest. Kristen Keffler is a thought leader at the forefront of a global shift in family wealth advising known as Wealth 3.0. She guides affluent and enterprising families, rising gen, and the professionals who support them in embracing the positive power of wealth and doing the inner work of money. In 2006, she founded her advisory firm, Illumination 360, and she is the author of her book, The Myth of the Silver Spoon navigating family wealth and creating an impactful life, which has earned her the reputation as a thought leader on today's global shift in family wealth advising. Drawing upon her own life experience as the daughter of a wealth creating family and her years of research and private practice in advising and coaching the rising generation of the ultra wealthy families, Kristen has come to believe that members of the rising gen are uniquely positioned to create and have a significant impact in the world. Kristen brings a multi-dimensional approach to her work, and that is abundantly apparent in my conversation with her in this episode. So without any further delay, let's get this show started. Kristen Keffler, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire podcast. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, Patrick, thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be here. You know, the one thing that is really fantastic about meeting, you know, new guests is like we literally have not met. So I'm on this journey of uh, discovery of Kristen and who you are and what you do. And uh, so I'm excited about it because I have read your bio. I've got some background on you and I'm very excited to have this conversation with you today. But Kristen, the bio never does justice to my guests' accomplishments, who they are, what they do. If, you know, if your bio is anything like mine, it probably needed to be updated. Now, now, in your case, you've just released a new book, so we can talk about that. But uh, give me some insights into uh, who you are when somebody says, Kristen, what do you do? Yeah. Wow. So um, sometimes I feel like that's a loaded question because when I'm asked that at a cocktail party, I feel like I need at least five minutes of someone's time because um, I don't have the I don't have the fast version of the, you know, I'm an engineer or I'm a doctor. Um, it, it usually requires a little bit of backstory because as soon as I say um, I'm a consultant who works with ultra high net worth families and and family enterprise, people go, Huh? What? Like, what do they need help with? <laughs> well, this, well, the good news is we got all the time in the world. So uh, let's <laughs> let's unpack that because even that part is, to me, very fascinating. It's very interesting because high net worth individuals, that's probably a reasonable question by many, you know, like, why do they need any kind of help? Right. Yep. It's And it, it is a legitimate question. And, and the truth is that, like, we're all human, right? So we're all on a path of growth and discovery and and hopefully learning and just because one has money and and more money than than you can imagine needing or spending doesn't take away problems right it takes away some problems makes a lot of things a, a lot easier 
But um, as some of your listeners may even be able to attest to, it makes other things harder. There's some things that get harder. And one of the things that, that um, you know, in the work that I do, I, I do. So let me back up and then I'll tell you what, what are some of the things that get harder when you have money? So I'm a, I'm a human capital consultant, which means that basically in the universe and the ecosystem of the kinds of advisors that work with um, significant successful families, the vast majority of those advisors have a technical background, right? Law, accounting, finance. So that like, so the vast majority of the people in that ecosystem have a certain kind of framework that they're optimizing around. And, and that's why they're there. They're there to use their incredible brains and skills to help individuals and families protect and grow their wealth in meaningful ways, right? And, but one of the things that is missing in often missing in that dynamic is, is what is most important to most families, which is like who we are, who the individuals are that make up that family. So while a lot of times families will begin to orient themselves around financial capital as kind of a central organizing principle, in fact, the, the heartbeat of the family is really what is most important. If you talk to a wealth creator and his or her partner, and you you sit down and you say, you know, at, at the end of the day, what you know, you're you're on your deathbed. What are what is most important to you that that got transmitted to to your kids and grandkids? And people are not going to say, you know, that they keep the most money, but I don't care about the relationships or like, yeah, the their their motivation was robbed from them, but I want to make sure they're good stewards of that wealth, right? They at the heart of it, really what, what all parents want is for their kids to grow up and thrive and have lives of meaning and contribution. And wealth, while it can be, while it can really be jet fuel to that, to the ability to have a life of meaning and contribution, it can also really be the thing that is the obstacle to the rising generation in those families actually finding their own path and their own voice. And, and there's lots of reasons why that might be. Um, and we can, we can get into that in a little bit. Um, what are, what are some of the things I've found in my research and in my, in my years of practice field work, you know, the last 18 years of, of consulting and coaching to, to these families, um, I can share what, what my insights are, but I think that the, one of the things that is like, I don't know, a big cloud that I would love for us to collectively start to dissipate is, is our collective relationship with money and with wealth. And the fact that in general, it's very, it's taboo to talk about it. We can talk about it in, in ways that are transactional or in ways that are um, aspirational, but we don't have we don't have good language when it comes to our relationship with it and our judgments, the projection that we have on people who have it, the people who have inherited it, which is like they get sort of the the super short end of the stick in terms of society's projections oh, and or the people that don't have it. Like we have sort of a messy relationship across the economic continuum with what we perceive money and wealth to be and um, and it's really from, from that lens that, that I think this work is most interesting because it, the more that we collectively can, can look at what is our actual relationship with money, one, the more we have the ability to, 
to create more of it and then to do more good with what we create. Well, you have just given me a ton to unpack here, Kristen. So I'm looking forward to this conversation because, you know, there's so many layers to what you just shared. And I want to back up a little bit. You know, there's a couple things that I guess at the end of the day, you know, there's a the cliche is when somebody's on their deathbed, you know, they're not saying, I wish I would have spent more time in the office, right? You know, they're talking about relationship and time with their family and things like that. You know, over the years, I've met, you know, certainly a lot of high net worth individuals. And you said something that's really interesting that I'd like to kind of dig into just a little bit, which is, you know, somebody may have a very you know, be very astute in their profession. You know, you, we use lawyers, we use uh, doctors as an example, and and they're brilliant at what they do. They really are brilliant at what they do. They're brilliant at actually making money because they're fantastic at what they do. But that doesn't mean that they have any understanding of money. And, you know, it is often the case that we hear stories about these individuals that get taken by scams because they're looking for some way to somewhere to put their money and they don't have that knowledge, you know, that's not their background. So they, right. to your point, you know, I think a lot of people assume that somebody who makes a lot of money understands how to work with that. And that's just not the case. And that's, that's really what you've discovered over the years, I'm sure. Yeah. I, I think Patrick, I think you're spot on that. It's a, that it's a, a fallacy to think that just because someone can get to the top of their their profession, whatever it is, entrepreneurs or or professionals, lawyers, doctors, um, et cetera, that and that at that peak place that they have the ability to generate income and in ways that would that blow a lot of people's minds, um, probably blow their own minds as well. Mm-hmm. And to think that that just because that is possible, that they then have one, know how to work with it. Two, have a healthy relationship with it. Three, are able to, to talk about it in with their spouses, with their kids, so that the people who are in their ecosystem also learn how to talk about it. Like, in general, that's just not the case. It's, it's more rare than common. Well, you you know, it's interesting because I've had many guests on the show and a, a friend of mine, Nancy Phillips, who really works with uh, families. Uh, around money. So to your point, she creates context and opens up the door to conversations around money. But isn't it interesting to note that because you're a doctor, because you're a lawyer, because you're that career oriented, even an entrepreneur who grew up and is now making money, they it's very good chance that they grew up in an environment where the parents never talked about money and or money was not a thing to talk about, discuss as very personal. And very few even understand the fundamentals of how to operate in a, a budget. And and I, I think that's, you know, really what you're talking about relationship with money, what I'm hearing, and you can kind of go down that path for me, is that's how I hear it, is that we grow up with relationship to money based on the family dynamics and what we learned and the stories we tell ourselves. you know, what I refer to as our BS, our, our belief yep. systems. And the next thing you know, it manifests itself as this sticky point or we accumulate cash, we lose it. We accumulate cash, we don't know how to put it to work. We get on the treadmill of, because everybody loves a doctor and thinks about how wealthy a doctor is, but at the end of the day, most doctors are on the treadmill. It's they're shooting, you know, they're they're eating what they kill, so to speak. So they have to be on that treadmill and they don't really know how to put capital to work so that they can eventually 
wean themselves off of that. So I, I know I said a lot there, but I'm I'm trying to. So tell me a little bit about when you talk about relationship with money, Kristen. How do you see it, given what you do? Yeah. It, so I I think that I think that you're spot on, Patrick. And you're um, when you say like so much of what we the the relationship that we end up with the relationship we end up in with money when we're adults comes from what we have inherited from inherited meaning like not not inheritance but like what we have observed um from our parents right like how much of our own money story is embedded in um watching money be a point of contention or how much of our money story has connection to the idea of that that money is love, right? Like maybe I didn't get as much of my dad or my mom's time, but they showed me they loved me by buying me this or, or you know, going on this fancy vacation or this or that, that it's like in that it's like, does money, we, we can quickly get confused about whether what money is because it becomes a proxy for so many other human needs and desires. So the human need for love and connection money can, it's not, it, it's a near enemy, right? It's not the real thing, but it, be, it it becomes, it can become the stand-in. And then you think about from a very early age, how we orient to that. And then like, so then to go unpack those beliefs when you're adult, an adult and you're saying like, okay, I want to, like, I, I want to be more conscious about this. I want to do it differently. To go, like those beliefs are pretty deeply buried. And so the work around money is probably some of the deepest work that we do because it is it is a a social construct it's something that we that is embedded in our lives in so many ways and and, and embedded in our narrative of who we think we are right were we the kid that that had too much or the kid that had too little did was you know what did we observe and how did we identify like all of that stuff is so embedded in the the identity we bring toward our adult lives and ultimately in order to find a healthier relationship with all of it, you have to decide what which of that what which of that BS actually still works and is actually suitable for for who you want to be and how you want to operate with money, so that you can create wealth, so that you can use wealth in a meaningful way. And how much of that BS do you want to rewire a little bit? Well, I think it. Oh, I mean, there's so many things to talk about here. I love this. I love this topic, by the way, because you know, with the little or the limited exposure I've had to it, you know, not just personally, but in my own kind of coaching over the years with people, you see certain aspects. So I want to dig into it a little bit because you've worked with a lot of high net worth individuals, but you know, you hear stories, for example, of you know somebody who's really wealthy today, but they came from very humble you know, beginnings because their parents had a whole story around money and there wasn't enough money. And they grew up saying, I'm going to make enough money to support my family, or I'm never going to go down that path. And then you have others who are brought up with a lot of money who are actually embarrassed by it. they actually have a story around it that was, you know, it was fake. It was all false and it was uncomfortable and I got judged and all the rest of it. So all of these things get hardwired into our own belief systems. Now, those are two interesting dynamics, aren't they? There is the extreme of, I grew up with no money. So Therefore, I work my ass off and I'm going to have money and I'm going to never go down that path. Or they grew up with money and it's 
you know, it becomes this thing that hangs around their neck saying it was bad news. You know, I remember reading a book some time ago. I don't know who wrote it, but it was basically a story about a rich kid who used to get dropped off at school by a driver and used to hide in the back seat, duck well, down so he wouldn't be seen. So, you know, have yep. you, have you see those experiences while well, Kristen being the, in the circle of influence that you've got? Yeah. One of the things I see, and, and you just, you just named it. Um, and I'll, I'll speak in the sort of the, the, through the specific lens of the, the rising generation and the affluent families I work with, that there's somewhat common pattern of either over identifying with wealth. So why, you know, feeling like I am my family's money, mm. like who, who would I be if this all went away? If I couldn't drive that kind of car, live in that neighborhood, mm. uh, go to that school, right? There's a sense of identity that gets very connected to the idea of the, uh, the lifestyle and what it means to be wealthy. And that, that is not, that's not a really healthy place of self-identity because you're, you're identifying with something external. Mm-hmm. On the other side is more like what you're talking about, which is this under identification with wealth where it's like, whoa, whoa, I, you know, sort of backing away. I don't, I don't want anything to do with that. I, I need to chart my own course. I'm, I'm going to take no help. I, I don't want anybody to know my name. I'm moving far away. And that, that also has its healthy place in one's own process of forming an identity, but ultimately totally under identifying and sort of cutting out with a pair of scissors that part of your narrative, your life story also is not healthy. And and what I talk to clients about is this idea of like, you're probably the healthiest thing is probably to be on a little bit of a teeter totter where there's where you have time when you can move back away from that circle of influence that your family has and figure out who you are and what your voice is. And, and there's times when you lean in and you and you really feel what it feels like to be someone who was born into privilege, who has opportunities and resources that many don't, so that you can really recognize the the um, many gifts you've been given, but not from a place of guilt, from a place of blessing, and then being able to figure out like how do you integrate that blessing into that core person of who you are that is not under identifying or over identifying, but really the the term that um that I, that we use is has hyperagency, like the ability to really see how truly um independent and capable they are. You know, I, I'm gonna I I wanna spend a little bit of time creating context here for listeners and understanding, you know, something that you know, I want to go back a little bit, something earlier that you said, so a trust funder. So, and then I'm going to come back here. So bear with me while I kind of plow yeah. around this, you know, but there's the story. I actually met a trust funder and, you know, it was interesting, very, very, very wealthy off the charts wealth. And, but he shared a story, which was came up in conversation was basically was the, the whole thing is that he says, you know, the problem with being a trust funder is he says, I've worked my ass off to do the right thing and to be philanthropic, to build businesses, to be an angel investor, to do all these things. And he's actually really took that whole trust fund concept and then put it on steroids to grow and to be an amazing person and build amazing businesses and do all the things. But he said, do you know something at the end of the day, I'm always looked at as the trust funder. I would never have been able to do this if I wouldn't have had the trust fund. And so he says, I've spent my life kind of 
working to prove that I could do this without the trust fund, but it doesn't matter. My identity is a tied to, oh, he's a trust funder. And so it yep. becomes this question, Kristen, in some cases, I'm sure, where you're breaking through this pattern of people, which is, you know, who who am I if I'm not that? And yep. that's really what you're you're saying in all of this conversation is understanding the relationship we have with money, what we've learned about money, and, you know, where do we sit in the kind of the... I, I don't know if you, where, where do we sit on the scale of our identity attached to it, especially given what's going on? I always, I, I'm just so not a fan of social media anymore, although I use it for business. It just drives me crazy, these snapshots yep. of moments in time that everybody compares themselves to. So I apologize for that little kind of going off the rails there a little bit. When you're, I want to know, what I'd like to get to with this, Kristen, as we go through this process is, you know, somebody listening to this, you know, if they're assessing their own belief systems, you, if you will, or their own understanding of money, what are some of the things that we should be bringing our attention to and unpacking? Now, I know you've got a book. We're going to talk about the book because I want to know, you know more about that. But give me some insights into somebody listening based on what we've said so far. What are some of the things that they should be paying attention to to know if they've got their own story around money or some, I guess, misunderstanding maybe about money? Yeah. It's a great question. I think the 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 first thing, and I, I'll share a process with you in, in just a minute that I that I developed that I found to be really helpful for one for for the rising gen clients I work with now, but even before the work that I've done with the with ultra high net worth families today, I did I did a lot of work with entrepreneurs, and as many entrepreneurs can attest to. Like the process of building and like putting your all into something and like the belief that you're going to get there, like there's a lot of digging deep and carving out old belief systems in order to have the courage to keep risking and and moving your idea forward, right? And and so one of the things I'm, I'll share this process in just a minute, but but I want to just sort of pull the the aperture way back and say like. The work that I do today is in this space with with families that have just more money than most of us can can imagine having. And yet the work around money itself is not something that is in their unique territory to do. Like we we all have a story around money. We all have a relationship to it. And whether it is healthy and conscious and clear or totally submerged and unconscious is really, it, it's just really up to how we were raised, kind of what we what we absorbed from the messages around us and then how much of our own work we've done around it. But there's one of the things, so I, I, I talk in the book uh, about this idea of clutter, like emotional and psychological clutter that, that can show up as a result of, uh, of being raised in a family of affluence. There's a specific kind of clutter that um, that I think is really common just across the spectrum, and that's money clutter. And and the way I define money clutter is that basically it's the limiting beliefs that we have about and the and the money stories that we've adopted that we've absorbed that that really keep us in a tight or unconscious relationship with money that that it's in in general that kind of relationship with money is harmful to our overall well-being right it doesn't it doesn't serve us in in a way that that really allows money to be 
a fabulous tool that allows it to freely flow to us. And so we can do something with it. And I remember, um, if you'll, if you'll indulge me to, to tell a quick story of when I realized like that I had some money clutter and I, I needed to do some work around it. And it was the couple of quick data points. So I'm the daughter of an entrepreneur. The last company that my dad started, he um, started with my oldest brother. I'm the youngest of four. So he, my oldest brother is seven years older. They started this company and it's, this was in the early to mid nineties and they took this company public and then they sold it. So there was a series of of wealth events that um, that impacted my family, which you can imagine ultimately was part of the story that led me to be doing the work that I do today was me trying to understand my own story and my own reality. But at the at the time that so this this all happened and the way that my parents um, handled their their estate at the time was to not do what a lot of parents do, which is to to start giving or, and, you know, shuttling down money to their kids. My parents didn't do that with us. So by, by the time we, I mean, we had, I had a, a lot of privilege and, and access to go to school without debt. And I mean, I, I, I have no complaints about how it was handled, but I wasn't getting money in the mailbox or something like that. And there was this, when I first started, um, my consulting business, I was 29. Then I left a, I left a good paying job I just gotten to the place where I knew that there was other work for me to do like stuff there, there was, there's my heart's work was out there yet to be done. And I started on the path of a solopreneur and, um, I, I had a business plan. I was ready to rock and roll and it like things didn't go quite according to the plan in terms of how quickly things were going to ramp up in, in my, uh, in my new consulting and coaching business. And, and really, I got to a point where I was, you know, I had been living on savings and I got down to not so much liquid savings left and really at a at a touchy point in my own experience of um, my own financial life. And the man I was dating at the time who turned out to be my husband, he was a smart guy. And he, we were out for a bike ride one day and he said, he said, do you realize that nearly every conversation we have recently in the, you know, like the last couple of months revolves around money. Like you're, you're about to get a client or you're, you have to pay your mortgage or, you know, he was like, everything is this like tense thing. That's like a push pull of, Oh, like I'm about to be able to breathe a little more. I'm about to run out. And, um, and, and I felt it in my body. I felt like I was in my bank account every single day. I was, you know, I was sort of like too in it and very much coming from a scarcity place in my own mind. And I realized when he gave me that feedback that it was like, like this buzzer light at the front of my brain that everything was being filtered through, you know, was it happening or not happening? Was I making money or not making money? And how much was I spending? And instead of really paying more attention to the quality of the relationship I had with the money that I had and the money that was coming in and how I could create a, just a much healthier relationship with it. I had to, I had to dig in and do months and months and months of work. And I, so I, I say that because I think ultimately the process that I developed um, ha- came out of a lot of trial and error for me, trying to figure out like, what's the, what is getting in the way of feeling more easeful. Like I wasn't going to, I was not going to be on the streets. I, my 
my parents were, my parents had, had money. And if there was something that, if it really came down to it, my, like from a Maslow's hierarchy of needs, I knew that safety and security would never be threatened for me. And I lived in a place where I felt threatened every day at that moment in time. And so, so there's, I think the, the, the first thing that, that you need to start to pay attention to is, is your, is your mindset. Like what, what do I, your mindset is really just a filter through which we take in information, right? So if you have a scarcity mindset, you're, you're going to look around and see that there's just not enough. There's not enough time. There's not enough money. There's not enough love, whatever it is. Like that's the filter that you're going to see where somebody else could look at the same exact data points. And if they have an abundance mindset, they'll see all the places where there's actually enough, where things are working just fine right now. And so, um, so, so understanding and pain, like a lot of this really requires just observing first, like how, like, how am I with that? Or how much do I, am I paying attention to my books? Am I in it too much or am I ignoring them? Do I overdraft my account because I'm not paying attention or do I hold on too tight and I'm never generous with friends and family because I don't want to let go of anything I've created? Like all of that is, is like, that's the first most important step. And I want to pause right there because I know that I've been talking a lot. So you can, I want to see if there's, if you have any comments or anything else that you might might add. Well, yeah, I do want to dig into it a little bit more because then, and here's, you know, some of my thought process, you know, that something that you were saying in all of that, that when you have that conversation with your husband and he points that out to you and you kind of go, holy shit, like, you know, you just like getting hit in the head with a hammer. There's this epiphany or this revelation. And then you did a bunch of work. So were you in that space at the time? So, you know, I, I see people and I've done lots of money work myself and my wife, my, my wife is this amazing creator. But when I say that, that sounds like really esoteric, you know, where, you know, the engineers on uh, listening into this and they, they are going, no, just tell me how, what's, you know, I need a spreadsheet. Right. So, right. but what, but what you're saying is, and I think this is more from, what I've learned over the years is money is just energy as all things are, you know, there is a, a consciousness that we can tap into energetically, but is that too esoteric for what you, the kind of conversations you have, or do you get into, you know, how are you budgeting and, and, or when you say, what's your relationship with money? What's the question somebody should, would ask themselves? Like if there was a specific question, you know, or two, you know, what would, what would a question be if I'm testing my own kind of relationship with money? What's a question or two I would ask myself? Yeah. So, um, all right. So I want to get back to the second question, the, like, what would be a question to test yourself with in a second? The first thing I want to, I want to note is that it's not, I, I don't always get into the more esoteric elements of our relationship with money, what it is really, right? Like, the fact that, that it really is just energy and it truly is a currency, right? It's it's something that can flow to and from and that it's actually our, our ability to sort of open up the channels of our own creativity. I and love our that, own... by the way. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, I have, in all of the work that I've done, what you just said, you know, currency as in current and energy, I mean... I've, it's interesting. I've not heard that before as much work as I've done, but that was, that's, that's awesome. So I just wanted to shine a light on that for everybody is you can't step over that. That is 
currency as in current. I love that. Good job. Okay. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, it's like that's a golden nugget, right? And I think it is a, a beautiful touch point when you're getting stuck in when you're when you're really feeling the blockage, right? You think about like how does energy flow? It 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 has to move. And and the when we are tight and restrictive, even in our thinking about money, it it blocks that ability to flow. And and that's what money wants is to be in motion. One of the, so you, you asked the question, like, what would somebody ask to test their relationship with money? Um, and it's, you know, it's quite common when I first start working with, with a rising gen client and a, and a, one of the client families I'll work with, and I'll say, what do you, like, how would you characterize your relationship with money? And generally the first response is this look of confusion, like relationship with money. What does that even mean? I don't know. Like, like you have to define that for me. And, and what I mean is like, we are always in a, some kind of dance. It's like, it, it, it is a, I don't want to say it's a person because we do too much anthropomorphizing it as it is, but it, there is, it takes up space, right? Um, money does. And, or it certainly can. And one of the, the, the things I'll ask is, okay, so if you think about how you feel when you are interacting with it, sort of your dated, like w- when are the points that you kind of um, intersect with, with money, whether it's transactions or whether it's recon- reconciling your books or whether it's thinking about an opportunity, a business opportunity that's coming or it slips through your fingers, like all of those are moments of interacting with with money conceptually. And when you think of that, do you feel like you're in the most loving, supportive relationship that you could ever imagine? Or do you feel like you're kind of in a, like a sometimes good, sometimes shady relationship that maybe is a little tingy abusive and maybe sometimes a little dysfunctional, right? Like, do you feel like you can really sort of lean back and trust it? Or do you feel like, like, yeah, I got to be on guard. I got to get what's mine. And, and all of that is our relationship with it. That's, that is how we bring, that's who we bring um, to that relationship is that it's either like the best, most unconditional, beautiful version of ourselves, or it's the part of us that's defensive and, and, you know, not, uh, yeah, maybe not, not the best partner in a relationship. Well, there's, you know, well, it's interesting, right, that you use that in the context of relationship, because, you know, certainly we have the, you know, we see, and I know in my own growth over the years, relationship with money is, you know, you mentioned it earlier on about scarcity, you know, not enough to go around. Or to your point, it's a, an abusive relationship as in you got to work harder, you know, you're not working hard enough, or you don't deserve more, you know, you you aren't worth more. And I mean, those are all actually, uh, that is your value that you place on yourself is also related to the relationship that you have with money and how you see it flows and how you see your own value. And so it's, it's interesting that 
when you when you kind of shine a light on these little subtle stories, this these little this little subtle BS that we have with ourselves, it really does manifest as in often either a lack or money coming in and money going and value. I'm not worth that much. Then all of a sudden you lose it. All those psychological kind of things. Can you go back a little bit, uh, Kristen, in, in in that? After your husband kind of shone a light on it for you, you you mentioned that you did a lot of work over the years. What would what would some example of a lot of work mean in 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 changing your relationship with money? Yeah. So I first I started I started reading some books that helped give me some a new perspective. One of them was The Soul of Money by Lynn Twist, which is a which is a just I think just a fabulous way to to sort of take a step out of what we typically think of the role that that money should have and think about it differently. The other one was by George Kinder and it's uh, Seven Stages of Money Maturity. And then there was actually, um, I'm looking at my shelf to see if I can see it because it was really quite uh, beneficial. I may have to, I may have to get it for you later because I can't think of the name of it right now. And, but we could, I could get it to you later and we could put it in the show notes. It was because it really took a spiritual look at money. And that gave me this whole other perspective altogether about like just thinking about what, you know, what did I think of money from a more spiritual, energetic place? And that, and that um, was really helpful. So first I read, and then I started really paying attention to my behaviors around it. So at that time, I was, like I said, I was in my accounts every day. I was sort of looking at inflows and outflows and I thought like I had to manage it. I had to control it. And there is definitely a healthy way to make sure that you are paying attention, right? Like not paying attention to your inflows and outflows is not healthy. It's not being in a healthy relationship with money either. It's being very detached, but always sort of like being in it and down to the penny and like, just that, like, I could feel the tension of being, like, watching my bank, you know, my bank accounts go down as the business wasn't taking off as fast as I thought, and I'm still living on savings. Then um, what I decided to do, I realized, like, what a place of scarcity I was living in. And so there's a couple things that that I did. Uh, one One thing that I did proactively that really helped, and that another little moments that just showed up that really was, uh, that I'll tell you about in a minute, minute. But one of the things I did was I recognized that I was bringing tension every time I thought about money. I, um, and so I thought, you know what, I need to change the way that I, I need to be ready and be intentional when I'm going to sit down and interact with, with my accounts reconcile. And so instead of being in it every day, I, I was living on a, like I, I had a budget, I was adhering to my budget. So I was like, things were not going, going to go off the rails in a month. And I was like, once a month, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to reconcile my books. But before I sit down to do that, I am going to light a candle. I'm going to say the prayer of thanks for all that I, you know, for the awesome townhome I was living in, for the warmth I had, for the food that was in my fridge, for all the things that that the inflow as small as it seemed at that time, but that the inflow was allowing me to have it all the lessons I was learning that growing up a, a kid of 
of quite a bit of privilege. I never thought about money. I never worried about food. I didn't think about how I was going to pay for school. I didn't question that I was going to have a car when I turned 16, right? Like I didn't have a really concrete relationship with money. And this process was providing me the opportunity to build that. And it was painful at first, but I was learning that I could transition it to being something that wasn't painful. And so I got very intentional and lit a candle. Yeah, you know, I had gratitude for all that I had. And then I would go in and I would reconcile. And when when I saw money going out, I would note how it was being paid to something that I that aligned with my values, right? Even if it was like paying the credit card bill, it was like, yeah, I value being someone who's debt free. So this is what I am doing is I am making sure I'm taking care of my debts and not letting them pile up. And, um, and then I would, even if it felt so measly, the income coming in, I would reconcile it and I would bless it and say, thank you. And then I would close my books down and blow out the candle and move away from the desk and move on to something else. And it was a very intentional practice of be in the right, right mental place be ready to actually pay attention to all that is great and good and happening for you right now, and then be done and then move on and go interact with the world and with life. And, and I will say that, I mean, it took, it took some time for, for that shift to start to really feel like it was showing up in my daily life. But I noticed that then when I was going to the grocery store and spending money, which used to feel so tight, it was like, I didn't want it. Like, I don't want to be, you know, it was always just this like, oh, I know I have to, but like, I don't want to spend that money. And instead it was like, felt like how awesome that I can buy the food that I'm picking out. I'm being choiceful so that I'm not overspending, but that's a, that's a choice. I get to do that. And it really like, I could feel the tension unwinding around it for me. And then there was two other like key things that were massive parts of my own money story, my own relationship to money story. And one of them, um, again, has to do with the, the, my now husband who we love to ride bikes. We've always loved to ride bikes. At the time we met, I was riding this old aluminum framed stock bike that I got in my early twenties. And, um, and I didn't have money for another bike at that time. And um, we were, I, I remember he found on Craigslist um, down down here in the States, he he found a, um, it was a Trek Madone um, carbon fiber bike that someone had like barely ridden and they were selling it because they were like, they were at like, they had a fire sale. They were getting rid of everything to, I don't know, some massive event in his life. And um, we went to go look at it and I was like, it fit me to a T. It was so racy and awesome. And I was like, I was like, I can't, it was $1,200 um, is what he was selling for. I was like, I can't do it. And, um, and my husband, or he was my, he was not my husband at the time. He, he was like, he was like, you know what? I, I don't want to undermine you, but I, I, I would like to buy this bike for you. And I thought about it and we, we, we rode home, left the bike at the guy's house we rode home and I had this like moment of conviction. It was like both terrifying and so empowering. I was like, thank you for being willing to do that, but you don't need to. And it's not because I was, I didn't want the gift from him. It was because there was this moment of clarity of like, 
I, I'm not going to need it. Cause I'm like, things are just about to turn for me. And, um, and it was B, it was the, so I, I dug into my savings a little more and I bought the bike. And every time I rode that bike for the next many months, while my business was really starting to turn, I was, I was like, this is the sign. Like, this is the sign that it's turning. Like I can feel it. I'm, and, um, and it was my sign to myself that I a hundred percent believed in my capacity to follow my vision and create something, um, really worthwhile and that could sustain me. I love that story. And one of the things that, you know, just to kind of unpack it a little bit more, uh, Kristen, is that it's interesting that there's, of course, the phrase that, you know, it's not the goal, it's who you have to become to achieve the goal. And, you know, really, when you started to shift your relationship with money, and you were doing, you know, whatever affirmation you might be doing, and looking after your books once a month, and doing all the things that you were doing around money, you know, a lot of people hear that and go, yeah, you know what, am I just going to sit there and, you know, you know, hum and stuff's going to show up. You know, there's, there's a story around it and it really isn't that. And I, and, and, and you actually articulated it very well is that it's not that it's you changed, nothing else changed. You changed how you held space, how you opened up your, probably your conversations were less negative, less defensive when it came to making money decisions. To your point, you were grateful. You understood that, yeah, you know, I can't have it all, but I, man, am I ever proud of the fact and happy that I can have what I have. That's a shift of your energy, which then of course ripples out to those around you. Now, when you're looking at, you know, and there's one other thing that came up when you're now husband, but then boyfriend said, yeah, I'd like to buy the bike. You know, there's a, there's a moment in time where, you know, there's, there is a phrase that for women that is, you know, a husband is not a financial plan. And, you know, it's, it's interesting that you at some point, whether that was conscious or subconscious, went, no, I can take this on myself. And you took responsibility, which, you know, I think for some women, this is me, because, you know, I'm just telling stories, but I think for some women that they don't have the confidence to do that. You have to develop the confidence depending on your upbringing. I mean, many do, but yep. many don't, right? So can you actually speak to that a little bit? Because I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. When you, you do you see that with, with women as well? I, I, I think there is some, I think there's both a, some element of gender to that, that, that I, I have seen. And also some, some element, you know, in the, through the specific lens of the, the kinds of families I work with, there's, it's not uncommon for, for rising generation who have been raised in a situation where they haven't had to fully take responsibility for their lives, their budgets, their car registration, paying their insurance, filing their taxes, or they have the, a similar thing. And I wonder I'm just wondering out loud in this right now. I don't, so this is, you know, I, I'm not opining necessarily, but but wondering like when that happens to women where there's, where there may be a, a more common, I don't know, a willingness to be taken care of. And when that happens to rising gen, that, that like willingness to be taken care of, like, I wonder that how much of it it's not actually about gender, right? It's not about women. Yeah, it's about the way we're socialized. Yeah. And and I would say that for me, one of the the defining moments was um 
was I was married in my early 20s and divorced in my mid-20s. Mm. And and so by the time I met the person who then became my husband today, I was in my late 20s and I had a different feeling about my responsibility to myself mm. and my and a different feeling about the commitment. My 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 parents had a very typical gender role relationship. My mom did work when we got older, but she wasn't nobody she didn't expect and my dad didn't expect that her money was going to be going towards household stuff right he was the provider and like that's like he he was the one that that was in charge of all that if she worked it was because she wanted to work she wanted to yeah and um and that and that's the role modeling that i had and what um what i realized was that um in getting divorced and having some years where i was i was like like, I don't want to be, I want to be in a relationship. The next relationship is going to be one where I am being very choiceful about, about saying like, I want to be your partner. I don't need you to, I, I don't want to get stuck here because somehow I don't have the autonomy to make a different choice. I love that. When you think about when you were raised and and again, it's not gender related, you know, you happen to be female, but you had uh, siblings. Do you, can you, uh, when you, as growing up to your point, you didn't have to worry about money in the context of, you know, where, whether or not you had to pay your bills or do those kinds of things. What was your, do you think in, when you look over and, and knowing your siblings the way you do, was their relationship different? Because your brother went on to work with your dad, build an amazing business, go public. I mean, that's no small task, small feat to, to accomplish. Do you, see, you know, because I've I've learned over the years that you know the experience with one person, you know, one child or the other can be totally different. Like, like, you know, it's like I I was raised by my my parents were just you know awful or just like I, I'm I'm scarred. It was trauma, and the and the you know the the sister that's only or a brother that's only a couple of years apart's gone. No, but my parents were amazing. So right. what what do you discover over the years in terms of how much? And I guess the real the real question there is how much impact do parents have? Because you know we've got listeners that are parents, and they're going to be saying you know. Are they even aware? Are parents even aware of the relationship that they're kind of teaching uh, their children to have? Yeah, I, I think that um, this is probably one of the many both and answers that I'll give, which is I think that parents are, I think parents absolutely have impact, right? Like how we parent, how intentionally the messages we give absolutely has impact, if nothing else, because it it creates less clutter for our kids to have to clear in order to to find their path forward. And I will also say that I think being a parent myself and seeing how, so I'm the youngest of four, as I said, and I have all brothers, so I'm the only daughter. Um, so there is some, you know, gender question in that as well. And I'm the youngest, which has a, like birth order has a, a whole other layer on all that. But I think about when I look at each of my brothers and I think about kind of their relationship to money, their path with money, like all four of us have had different, I would say, uh, from, you know, looking at them from the outside, that all four of us have had sort of a different journey with that. And I would, and I think that my 
I think my sort of identity as the the fact that I had that I did some identity work and I had to do some identity work around being the daughter of a highly successful entrepreneur. I think I had to do more of that than my brothers did because of the age I was at the point that all of this happened with my dad. Whereas my brothers were all, I mean, one of my brothers was obviously doing this with him. So he has a whole different story. And the other two were like, one of them was off in Europe for a couple of years and like pretty not, uh, you know, connected to everything that that was going on here. And another one was just off doing his own thing. And in, I mean, he graduated from college and was off in his life. And I was at a place where I was just coming out of college. I was still dependent on my parents. I, you know, I got to do super fun shopping and Broadway trips to New York and get picked up in a limo and stay at the fancy hotel in Times Square. Like there was all these things that like my brothers didn't actually participate in some of the like newfound wealth celebrations the way that that I did. And so I think my identity around it was the identity work I had to do around it was different than them. And so I I bet like they don't, they didn't have as much clutter in the same space in the same way that I did. It's interesting, right? You know, I, I have three sisters and so I, I had two sisters older, one younger. And because I was the only boy, I was considered the golden child. Now that's, that's a little bit funny because we definitely grew up on the wrong side of the track. So I don't know what golden child <laughs> even represents in reflection, but my oldest sister was spoiled rotten. My youngest sister was spoiled rotten. That was always the joke around the house. It is funny dynamics of family. Kristen, tell me about what, you know, you went on to be entrepreneur. Were you always, did you kind of like come out of college and went, no, I'm going to do this. It sounds like you were right away. You're going, I'm going on this entrepreneurial journey to do what you were going to do. Is is that the case? It actually, it's not quite. I, you know, one of the things that, that I got stuck with, I think I probably always have had a, I don't know, it's a vision and, and the, I don't know, the grit to like say, well, I'm I'm just going to go try this. Like I I did things in college where I just created my own internship and then I proposed it to the school and they were like, oh, yeah, that, that sounds like a good internship. You should, you can get credit for that, right? Like I, I had this sense early on that like if I decided something that I wanted to do something, like I would find a way to make it so. So I think that part had been in me, but the the thing that um and you know this is like mostly upon reflection i don't think i really understood it at the time but coming out of college at the same time that my dad had just taken a company public and then sold it and then watching not not even really understanding the the sort of magnitude of like wealth and i describe money and wealth as as two different but interrelated things money is something that we transact with we can understand it on sort of a human scale Wealth is the the accumulation of money, and it really is an abstraction. It's an abstract concept, right? Like if you have a million dollars or two million dollars or ten or a hundred million dollars, like it's numbers on a page. It's not, and it's maybe this sense, this feeling of freedom. It's a feeling of security, but it's not something you go like transact with. You pull out of your wallet and like go pay for coffee, right? So if if money is confusing. Wealth is like confusing squared because it has all the entanglement of money for us, but then it's also abstract. And so 
for me, there was this, you know, watching that happen and then hearing, you know, what, well, what did dad sell the company for? And what it like trying to understand what that meant to, to us, it was, it created a, a bar for success that felt very high that I felt like if I had an inkling to want to go off and do something, you know, create something on my own, how could I ever achieve that bar? And so if you can't achieve that bar, then like, how do you define success? For me, that was, and I, I think for a lot of kids raised with, with big thinking parents who go off and do big things, I don't, I think it's common that there's this sense of like, gosh, that's a pretty high bar of success. Maybe I like, maybe I'm not going to try. Cause if I try and I like, you know, I like earn a really solid six figures in my business. Like, is that, that's no, like, that's amazing. But the bar is like, financially speaking is way up here. And so, um, I think that it took a while for me to, I mean, I, I went and I worked, I got a, I got a master's degree in, and an undergraduate degree in human biology and chemistry. And I got a master's in uh, business and public health. And I went and I worked for um, some different Fortune 500 companies around here, building health and productivity management programs. And I loved the work it combined health and human peak performance and human behavior change and all stuff that I loved. And I, it, it was in my late 20s, I really felt this like restlessness, right? I'd gotten married and divorced. I had my own quarter life crisis and I was like waking up to a life of bigger impact and it was going to take a lot of courage to, to get there. But I feel like in retrospect, I mean, I, I left my, my W2 job, uh, my, my J-O-B job when I was 29 and I look back and I'm like, wow, that was kind of gutsy. That was Mm -hmm. like a gutsy thing to do as a 29 year old to be like, yeah, like I'm going to be a consultant and like someone's going to listen to me. And I feel like now I am so grateful. Like I feel so fortunate to have, to have been able to craft something that is like my work is this, is this living laboratory for my own life. And it's always like shifting and, and changing. And I find that, um, one, it's always interesting Two, I've, I've been able to earn really good money, which is like a joyful thing to see happen that cycle of, but, but, but without like re like grabby attachment to it, it's just like, wow, that's, it's amazing. And, and then also to realize that by truly getting connected to and living by something that is deeply, I feel like I'm, is like deeply being guided from me, I can have greater impact is, I don't know, I feel like I won the, I won the lottery. I love that story. And, you know, in all of that, you know, what I like is that you built a business, you created something for yourself that you love to do, and you had to dig in and design it. It's like going back and designing your internship or having an idea of what that might be, right? There's a lot of gratification in building a business that is unique in that you built it. You know, it was something that you said, I want to create an income. I want to make a difference. I want to be a contribution. And you built a business around that. And that's always, I think, 
fantastic. You know, talking about success, and I know that this may be a tough question or maybe not. Do you have a definition of success for yourself? I mean, you're talking to people all the time that if you only measured it by money, then, you know, okay, so who's got the most money wins, I guess, you know, uh, what, what is your definition of success? Do you have one? You know, I, I do. Um, but I've, I've shifted the language for me because success does have such strong connotations of financial success. And I've actually found, you know, paradoxically that the less I have focused on financial success, and and the more I have focused on fulfillment, the more financial success I've had. And so for me, the definition, I like I've sort of removed success just because, I mean, I could probably find a way to define it that felt good and authentic and inspiring, but, but fulfillment does like, I can easily get there. I can easily say to my, like when, when I am doing work that is deeply absorbing, that I feel like I'm on the edge of my own learning and that I'm then able to take one of my unique gifts, which is to, to capture a lot of ideas and distill them into something that I can then share back with someone that might help shift their perspective and open up a new doorway for them, a path towards their own thriving. Like that feels deeply fulfilling. And the the fact that I can also have like the brain that like can figure out how to have a uh, run a business, like successfully package up ideas in a way that I can say, hey, this is a pathway that we can walk together. That's really fulfilling, right? There's lots of people who are like incredible coaches or or people who are like really able to do that human work who haven't yet tapped that skill of the business element. Like, well, how do you actually get someone to understand what the journey is that you're, that you're inviting them on. And so for me, the, the, the definition of success is really when I turn it on its head and I think about what is most fulfilling and, and how do I, then, then I feel like my heart can totally engage in that. And, um, and it turns out that the financial success piece, one has become less important, but two has become easier to come by. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, you know, this is, uh, I think I'm going into my seventh year of this podcast and it's a question that I rarely ask. I actually quit asking it because it is very personal. It's very difficult to describe. I just, I wanted to put it out to you because it, you kind of wove it into the conversation a little bit, but I, I love what you said around, you know, and everybody has their own definition and, but I think it is, there is a degree of importance in that you have some definition for it you know, for yeah. yourself. Right. I think there is a place where you should be able to define it. Yours is around fulfillment. And, and, and I know it's more than that, but whatever you're doing, you know, I have a friend of mine who's going, listen, I'll do anything as long as it's fun. If it's not fun, I'm not doing it. Full stop. You know, very wealthy young man has done a yep. lot of really cool things. Yours is around fulfillment. A definition that a guest once gave me is that his success, his definition of success is constantly changing, but it's driven by 
am I living the life of my vision or of my dreams? And Mm. when I get to that stage, that's a win. I would call that being successful. So at any given time, am I living the life of my vision? And which in his context, by the way, included fulfillment, included contribution, included significance, included all the things that it included, but it was his vision. And he said, if I'm living my vision on any given day, any given week, any given month, and all the things that go on to achieve that and the ups and downs, then I'm considering myself successful. And what wasn't on that list was how much money he had. You know, it was really... That's part of it, but it wasn't like I'm not measuring myself against the millions or lack of millions that I have. It was so it's an interesting definition that I've been percolating on for quite some time, but I really liked it. So I share it with you. No, I I love it. And I I, it totally resonates with me. And I I think that, you know, as as I extend what you just shared into thinking about the different wealth creators I know, and I, you know, I'm I'm lucky enough to work with like remarkable thought leaders, uh, you know, remarkably enterprising people who have created significant wealth with their ideas. And I I think that there's sort of two major camps. There's probably more. If I thought more, maybe I could come up with a third category. But right now I'm thinking two major camps that I see those wealth creators fall into. And one of one of those camps is there's a strong drive to create wealth. And the smarts to figure out how to optimize an opportunity to do that. So the, the the goal in that case really is wealth creation. And very often I find that those wealth creators are less happy when they actually get to like get there, you know, get to the whatever place they wanted to get to, sold a company, you know, built a, a certain kind of net worth because the goal that like money was the scorecard and so if they haven't yet done the work around, well, what does that all mean to me? And then what what really, what's the broad version of success? Then then that's never enough, right? Like you you can't have enough money to fill the hole if you don't, if you're not willing to fill the hole in another way. But there's another bucket of wealth creators that are super interesting to me. And they are the ones that are like just so innovative and so creative and they go off to go, do their thing. And it turns out that they're so good at it and they have the business mind for it and they create something really significant and they can earn many, many millions and billions of dollars and not want to stop because they love what they do. And those people, like they can, when I talk to to those kind of wealth creators, they often will have this like, like, wow, like, can you believe that? Can you believe that I like, it's stunning to them that they have been able to create what they've created and they still go to work, not because they, not because they want to make the pile bigger, but because they're just like, I like, I don't know, like it just keeps generating money, but I want to go do this thing. Yeah. And they just seem to be happier. Like they, they're driven by something else. Not money. I love that. And I love that part of it. And, you know, so many that are still in the mode of wanting to do that. Yeah, I'd love to get there. It's easy to when you get there, it's easy to say that. But that's not the truth. The truth that is the truth It is that you're loving what you do and you get there and it's just like, no, I'll just keep doing this. It doesn't yep. matter because I'm really, really loving what I do now. 
as we kind of, kind of, kind of widened down, I love these conversations, uh, Kristen, but tell me a little bit about what inspired you to write the book. Tell me a little bit about the book and yeah, let's go there. Tell me about yeah. the book. What inspired you to write it? So thank you for the question. I, Cause I am super excited about it. I feel, um, I feel like this book was like, I carved out my my soul to try to write something that would not just be a fancy business card, but that would actually contain a, an invitation and a and hopefully a catalyst for for those who are raised in situations where they are you know significant families with wealth and with with enterprises, they have a roadmap forward. So the 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 book itself is called The Myth of the Silver Spoon: Navigating Family Wealth and Creating an Impactful Life. And it's written for the rising gen in affluent and enterprising families, um, for their parents and for their trusted advisors. And the 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 goal of the book is multifold. One was to really shine a light on our collective relationship with money and with wealth and how generally messy it is. And just say, hey, like, we all have some work to do across like all of us do, because we ha we have projections about wealthy people where where there's both the the envy of wanting that because it looks like it would be so fabulous, but also equally sort of shunning them for and saying like that wealthy people are the the root of our ills, and and the truth is like all of it, right? It is both wonderful and and life is easier on many fronts, and. There are things that that people with wealth do that are that are difficult and undermining because having a greater wealth gap is not good for a society as a whole. And that's not like neither one of those are truth with a capital T. There are, it's all part of this this myriad of of our our own cluttered relationship with money and wealth and I feel really strongly that that for that as each of us heals our own relationship with money, our ability to stop sort of pushing people who have a lot or have a little and creating these, these projections about what it means about them. And instead, we have the ability to, to use the resources that, that privately held capital is and, and do something good with it. So the book is like this. It's a broad lens on, on this cultural relationship with money and wealth. But then it really drops down into um, looking at what are some of the common tripwires and and the kinds of emotional and psychological clutter that are that are unique to rising gen race in the, in in these situations where from the outside everybody would say like wow like no you know looks like easy street to me and no one wants to hear the problems of a rich kid like don't tell me your life is hard because like you don't know what hard is and. There's not a uh, client I've ever worked with who doesn't acknowledge that that they have been given immense privilege and a and a huge leg up, and it makes it even more painful for them because of that that there is some unique clutter, a psychological and emotional clutter that they have. I had, I had one client tell me he was like he's like man like I he was mid thirties, really stuck had tried to have to have a job outside the family business, but like 
didn't get a lot of inroads there, went back and decided to try to take a leadership position in the family business, but got very sort of overshadowed and belittled by his father and ended up in the situation where enough time passed that he, you know, his friends all like got on the track and got jobs and were launched and he was still fumbling around and very stuck, very bright, very bright um, young man, but very stuck. And he said to me, he said, he's like, man, I feel like such a jerk. Like I cannot find my way out of a paper bag and look at all of the, look at all of the, the privilege that I've been giving all the, all the legs up that I've been given. And I like, I am so stuck. And it's what I find is that it's, it, there's some things that are really quite common. There's some common psychological clutter that, that are, can be pretty unique to this unique circumstance. And it's, it's around, you know, money clutter, which is more caught, like that's more common, but also clutter around relationships and how, like, do people really like me for me? Like, am I, is this, is this a, a near, a real friend or a near enemy of a friend, someone who looks like a friend, but isn't really a friend. So the questioning of that authenticity and like, am I really truly lovable for me or am I only lovable because of what I have? And the, that message that is so deep and it's so hard to even get to tease it out because it can be so deep in inside people. And I, I mentioned earlier this idea of identity clutter, like over-identifying or under-identifying with family wealth and, and you know, a big family name, that kind of thing. And then um, finally, this this idea of what I call contribution clutter, which is really at the heart of, we're talking about work, but work has such a strong connotation with with money, with like getting paid for something. And work doesn't always have to be paid to be meaningful. And so a lot of the rising gen that um, that I work with, they, they struggle with this because they don't necessarily have a financial need to work. But just like you talked about with your, with the, the friend that, that you mentioned that has a trust fund, having, removing the financial need to work doesn't remove the human need to work. We still have a need, like hardwired in us to wake up and feel like the effort we're putting out into the world is being reflected back to us with validation that we matter. And so, so that's some of the common clutter that, and so we talk, I talk about that in the book. And then I talk about what is it that like, what are, what can you do to clear that clutter? And what sort of character traits and skills um, really support thriving adults? And like, how does wealth get in the way? Of, wealth and, and money, and that doesn't even have to be significant wealth. It can be like, you know, upper middle class. Like when there's when you have more than you need to cover your your basic expenses and you have discretionary money to make choices with, it can create a buffering effect for your kids, right? You can make their lives easier than you may intend to make it. And in that, take away some opportunities for them to build grit and growth mindset and and have a mastery orientation. Um, so that's the, the so that and then the the final invitation in the book is is one that I feel like it's not everybody's calling to go be a big world change maker. But for those for whom like there is there's something that resonates where they feel like, no, I I want to take what I've been given the social networks, the financial capital, and I really want to do something with it. The last section of the book is really a roadmap, a call for, and a road, you know, an invitation to 
and then a roadmap for um, how do you engage in impact work and impact giving? How can you use financial resource to solve some of the seemingly intractable challenges you see around you that governments haven't been able to solve and nonprofits haven't been able to solve, but private capital can move fast and be deployed very effectively. And so the last part of the book is really a, an invitation to think about that. I love all of that you just shared there. You know, there's a, you know, there's that same friend of mine, you know, who over the years has traveled the world, of course, and talked to many other wealthy individuals. And he uses a phrase called the velvet rep. And he said, it's easy for the uber wealthy, we'll use that phrase, you know, the mega wealth to be in this velvet rut that is totally unsatisfying, isn't fulfilling to your point around what some of your, how you measure success, doesn't bring a lot of joy and can be very empty in terms of if you don't, if you're not being a contribution and the only thing that's giving you significance is the fact that you're attached to some kind of net worth, you lose a lot of identity in that, you know, as opposed to being significant or having significance, which is a human need, is to have significance. But if you can do that through contribution, making a difference in other people's lives changes the game in terms of how you look at life overall, I think. And you know, and in the, and what I'm also hearing in that is there's a part of it, you know, even in the podcast, you know, the title of The Everyday Millionaire was really about those individuals you know, that kind of links back to some of the story that you shared, which is they just get up and they go to work and they just quietly do what they do. There's not a lot of uh, fanfare. There's not a lot of, uh, you know, media attention. They just go to work, have a great life, love what they do, and are, in fact, a contribution to all of it. And so I love that thought process and that, you know, the whole it is really a story around you know, you're born with a silver spoon in your mouth. And and that there really is a a, a, a negative connotation to that. That sure. just isn't true. If you're in it, it can be just as awful as not having money. And everybody says, well, that's bullshit. You know, money makes, you know, it, it's, it's way easier to have money than to not have money. And while that may be true, uh, for some of your clients, I'm sure there's a part of them that's going, yeah, sometimes I think it would just be better if I didn't have this much. Is, th is that the case? It, it is. I. I mean, it's. It's. It can be terrifying for them to think of. Mm -hmm. Um. And 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 I have absolutely had clients say, like, well, if I didn't have this, I'd have to go figure it out. I'd have to go get a job, right? And and get unstuck. And you would think, like, well, why don't they just go do it? But it's so much more tangly than that. It is. It's not that easy. So, Kristen, this has been a fantastic conversation and I've taken up already a lot of your time. So thank you for uh, sharing the insights that you've shared. And as I wind down, I always like to just kind of have a little bit of fun and uh, a couple of what we would call rapid, not so rapid fire questions. Are you ready to uh, do a little more work? I'm ready. Favorite swear word? Ooh, I think it might be the F word. Yeah. I think, I, I don't know, so many, I listen, I have a diversity, fuck, 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 you know, like, it's like, that's my favorite. And then I have others that go, they think about it and they go, yeah, no, I don't swear. <laughs> I go, what the <laughs> hell? How's that even possible? Anyway. I, feel like, I, I feel like swearing is like a spice, right? You, if, if you just lean on it too heavy, it's like, it's too much. And then it, to me, it shows a lack of intelligence. It may not, but it's like, use a better word. You can find a better word, but like, a little bit of spice in there is like sometimes you just need a good F-bomb. I agree 100%, by the way. 
Favorite tune, favorite band, do you have one? I do. Well, I I have a, a long love affair with Willie Nelson. Mm. So uh, he's he's just good. And I'm gosh, I probably have a, a lot of favorite, favorite, uh a lot of favorites I would pick. But one one sort of like current one, he's not as well a known of an artist, which blows my mind because he's so darn good, but is he's a country artist. His name is Jason Eady. E-A-D-Y. And like, I could probably pick 10 songs of his that I think are my absolute favorite, but he's just, he's like good old country. Well, I tell you right now, I have a, a lot of music files that listen to this. So they'll be looking that up. I'm sure. How about a favorite movie? Do you have a favorite movie? This is going to go back in the way back machine to my youth, but um, the princess bride has been a long time favorite. Mm, sure. Your room, your desk, or your car? What do you clean first? Eh, desk. <laughs> you look back at your dog that's been sleeping quite nicely behind you. What kind of breed? I can't see. He's on a. She's a she's a miniature Australian Shepherd. Oh, okay, yeah, okay. We got two Bernese Mountain dogs, so I'm always you know paying attention to dogs. Same coloring, but just yeah. like. A micro dot of the size of your dogs. <laughs> yes, so true, isn't it? What do you want to hear God say when you get to the gates? Oh, man. No one's ever asked me that question. You done good. Beautiful. And Kristen, finally, what are you grateful for today? Honestly, like this conversation, Patrick, was has been unexpectedly refreshing and like so... Fun. I think I think I am grateful for this last 90 minutes. Beautiful. And I am always grateful for my guests, Kristen, and what they bring to the listeners and what they bring to me in terms of I'm always learning something. So uh and I'm 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 very grateful for my dogs and my amazing wife and family. So uh it's been a pleasure having this conversation with you today. And uh thank you so much for joining me, Kristen. Likewise, Patrick. Thank you for having me. This is great. Ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others. Share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.